Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Matt, and I am recording this from my office. Every once in a while, something happens and we're unable to record our podcast as normal, whether it's a Sunday morning or Wednesday or whenever. This past Wednesday, at the beginning of our new summer study series on hot-button theology, uh, our power went out right at 6 p.m., so right when we were about to start, we gave it a few minutes to see if it would come back on and we could resume, Uh, but I just trucked on teaching in the dark for about 25 minutes before the power came on, and by that point, um, either we could have started the recording and only gotten half or uh, just do it this way. So it's easier just to do it this way. Uh, if you missed our uh, first summer study this past Wednesday, May 25th, on hot-button theology, uh, this is that lesson. So I know many of you are looking forward to hearing from uh, some of these issues. And uh, over the course of the summer study series, we're going to look at four. Uh, certainly there are many more, but we're going to look at four main issues that Christians have disagreed on. Now, these are not what I call primary issues. So these are not issues that celebrate, um, these are not issues that separate uh, people from being Christians. This is not stuff that, that keeps people from being believers. These are honest, what we would call family discussions within the church, within Christianity, amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. These are serious, uh, sometimes, sometimes very serious disagreements we have that might keep us from going to the same church together or even the same Sunday school class together, but they do not keep us from going to heaven together. And so that that's the point of this whole series, is to maybe help some of us take a pause and, and back up for just a second, uh, maybe challenge some of our own um, preconceptions about things. Uh, for me, I know a, a lot of stuff that I'd always thought, always heard, um, I ended up challenging and coming to some different thoughts on. So uh, tonight, session number one, or today, whenever you're listening, session number one, we're going to talk about the charismatic gifts. So uh, things such as speaking in tongues and prophecy and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, some of these issues that have created entire denominations, we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, certainly might keep people from going to church together, from uh, people that think that these things should happen and that we should be seeking for them, and then churches who don't think that these things should happen or that we should be seeking for them to happen. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. At our study in June, um, we're going to talk about the differences on uh, God's sovereignty and salvation. So what you might have heard described as Calvinism or Arminianism, we're going to talk about that in June. In July, we are going to talk about the end times. So the 50 million different ways that Christians interpret and understand the book of Revelation and uh, what will happen at the end of time, the end of the world, when Jesus returns. We're going to talk about those issues in July. 
And then lastly, in August, we will talk about uh, the differences Christians have on views of the church, the New Testament people of God, and Israel. So um, are we two separate people? Is there just one body? Is there two things, two plan? Talk about all that in August. So today, uh, I invite you with me. I have my cup of coffee here that I will be sipping on. <laughs> you get yourself a cup of coffee or whatever you're doing and uh, journey along with us through this first study on the charismatic gifts. If you care to follow along with the handout, that is available. Um, for many of you that come to our regular services, you might be used to pulling up the version notes. Um, there are version notes for this tonight, uh, this session on Hot, hot Button Theology, the Charismatic Gifts. You can find that on the version app. So if you have the Bible app and it's that version app, uh, just go to the menu, go to Events, and I've made it live for 14 days. So over the next two weeks, you should be able to access this. The only thing that's in there is a link to this handout. Uh, so there's no other notes. You'll just click on this event. It'll say Wednesday Study Series, uh, May 25th, 2022. Click on that, and the, the only thing you'll see there is a link to this handout. So if you want to print it out and fill it out, if you just want to look along and uh, follow it, that's fine. However you want to use it is good. If for some reason you're listening to this like five years down the road, <laughs> and that uh, version notes are no longer available, they're not live, just email the church. Uh, fbcdumas at hotmail.com uh, or get in touch with someone at, here at the church and uh, I will send you this handout if you just really want it, you know, 20 years from now and, and you're looking through this this study. So let's get started. As I said tonight, we're talking about the charismatic gifts, particularly speaking in tongues and uh, prophecy and uh, what those things have to do with the, the church today. Should we seek them? Should we not? Is God still operating in that way or is he not? So that leads us to the primary question, if you're following the handout at the very top there. Are the charismatic, what we call the sign gifts, well, that might be a bad title. We'll talk about that too. Are those charismatic sign gifts still available or did those gifts cease after the apostolic era? That is the primary question, and that is where the controversy, that's where the division lies. Are they, one, still available, these gifts, or did they cease after the apostolic era? The other night in our study, um, well, we probably had 20 people there, a uh, small group, uh, but even in that small group here at First Baptist Church in Dumas, uh, I, I, number one, I asked who had had whether they had done it or not, who had had any exposure or been in a service where, or, or in a situation at all, where someone spoke in tongues. And a good majority of the folks raised their hands. And um, I then asked, you know, well, who in, who in here has a Pentecostal or charismatic background? And yeah, five or six people raised their hand. Uh, that's the churches they, they had come from. And then I asked in our group of 20 how many themselves had, to their understanding now, uh, we're, not, we're not saying one way or the other, uh, to their understanding how many had spoken in tongues. And uh, five or six raised their hands. And 
I, I did that to show the group gathered that night that even in a group of 20 here at First Baptist Church, <laughs> there was considerable difference in our background, maybe some considerable differences in our understanding of those gifts, and even considerable differences in our practice of those gifts. So it th- this whole series is meant to help us um, listen to people with different views, to hear different sides of an argument, uh, maybe to challenge some of our own thinking, maybe to root ourselves deeper in our thinking. You know, sometimes you do these things and you'll come out on the other side stronger than what you had already thought, and that's great, uh, through biblical study and the teaching of the Holy Spirit, or you come out on the other side and you're different uh, in some of your opinions. And uh, I just ask that wherever you are on any of these issues, that you deal with the scriptures, listen to the Holy Spirit, and uh, challenge yourself to think through these things. And so tonight what we're thinking through is these charismatic gifts. Uh, Are they available or are they not? So number one, what are we talking about? Uh, Spiritual gifts. What are we talking about? Well, there are two main words, main words, used in the Bible to describe spiritual gifts. And at this point, I'm following the handout. So if you want to follow along and fill in, that's uh, that's good. The two main words used in the Bible for the spiritual gifts, number one, uh, pneumatica, pneumatica. Now, if someone knows better than me, you can tell me, but I think uh, in Greek, you can say the P at the beginning of that. But you'll recognize that from the root word pneuma, which we say in English for lots of things. Uh, most The thing I most often think of is pneumonia, which is a breathing problem there in the lungs. So pneuma refers to spirit, but it simply means breath or wind. And when it's used in the scriptures, pneuma, we're talking about flowing from the soul or even the Holy Spirit. The New Testament's pretty good about letting us know when it's talking about the Holy Spirit. It'll put that little adjective, uh, agios, in there that says this is the Holy Spirit, not just any breath or any wind or any human spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. So no matter what we're talking about, this this root word pneuma, from which this word pneumatica comes from, you see these are things that are given by the Spirit. So sometimes when you're looking in, in the Scripture and it says spiritual gifts, it will be this word pneumatica, things of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. Another word that we use in Scripture is charisma. Now, this one might be more familiar because we're talking about charismatic gifts. Uh, Charisma comes from the Greek word charis, the root word charis, which just means grace. Um, when, When you look in the Scriptures and you see the word grace in the New Testament is that Greek word charis, and charisma is then a gift of this grace. This is a gift freely given by God. Now, yeah, it can refer to salvation. It can refer to any blessing or gift given by God, but it is also used of these spiritual gifts that God gives his people for service and use in the church. So pneumatica, things given by the Spirit, or charisma, these free gifts of God's grace and kindness. Uh, we talk about someone being a charismatic speaker. Uh, Christian stuff aside, someone can be a charismatic speaker, and we're saying what? They're they're gifted at what they do. Uh, Someone is uh, charismatic in the Christian sense. We might be talking about these gifts and the practice of these gifts, but all of it comes from that same root word, 
charisma. These gifts are often divided into two basic categories. So uh, two basic words in here, two basic categories. And, and again, these, these categories sometimes fail to describe um, the theology that everyone has on these, but these are just two pretty classical categories for these spiritual gifts. We'll, we'll talk about why they do and, and they don't work later. Number one is service gifts. Service gifts, we'll define this as uh, gifts for service within the local church. Um, so uh, practical things such as teaching, giving, mercy, hospitality, uh, those, those service gifts for use within the church. And then there are the sign gifts. Uh, and again, there'll be disagreement across the board on, on, on how we define this, but this is just to help you get your mind around this, these different gifts. This is what we're talking about tonight. These miraculous gifts, traditionally stated to, to be given to validate a message or a messenger. So uh, tongues, prophecy, healing. You know, we look at Jesus' ministry and we see that he did signs. We might say the word miracles, but signs is, is a little better because it points us somewhere. And so when Jesus was healing uh, the blind, the lame, you know, raising the dead, cleansing the leper, feeding the multitudes, walking on water. These, these signs that he did were pointing to who he was. So they were a validation of who he was, and they were a validation of his message. And then when we come into Acts, and, and the apostles are doing many of the same things, healing people, raising the dead, uh, we, we would call those signs. And so these miraculous things are happening that are validating the message of the apostles and are tying them directly to the ministry of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see these are, these are signs. Now we get later in the New Testament, we see the issues of prophecy and speaking in tongues and healing. Uh, traditionally, people have just put those in that same category. We believe these were sign gifts given to validate the message of the apostles, to validate the gospel, there in the early church, and, and that's what they were for. Now, continuationists, we'll talk about what that means, uh, charismatics, uh, those who say the gifts have not ceased, they'll say, yeah, but it was for far more than that, point taken. Cessationists would say, and we'll talk about what that means, those who believe the gifts have ceased, they'll say, well, that's all they were for. Um, either way, most agree, there's these sign gifts that are there to validate the message or the messenger, and that's what these miraculous supernatural, sensational gifts were given for tongues, prophecy, healing, uh, raising the dead, and so on. So where do we agree? Well, no matter what you believe about the gifts, we all agree that all of these gifts occurred in the New Testament. Okay, there's no one that says, no, they did not speak in tongues. <laughs> no one that says, uh, liberals maybe, there's, there's, there's no uh, Bible-believing Christians that look at the Scriptures and take them seriously. Uh, none of us who would say, no, they, there, there was not prophecy, there was not healing. All of us agree that these things occurred in the New Testament. That is not the disagreement. The disagreement is whether all of these gifts are still available today. And we all agree that they happened then. The question and the disagreement is, are they still happening? Should they still happen? Might be a different question um, today. So where did this all come from in uh, modern church history? Uh, 
what really brings a lot of us to these questions. And I think we'll do a little historical context to see how we got to this point here, maybe in the 21st century in evangelical churches and, and where this question is rooted for us. Those who believe that all the gifts are still available, okay, so all of them, no, no, no exceptions, they generally belong to churches within what we call the Pentecostal or charismatic movement. Those two things are not the same, and we'll talk about those differences in a minute, uh, but the majority of those who generally believe, hear all those words, uh, that all the gifts are present and should be sought for and practiced in the church generally belong to Pentecostal or charismatic churches within those traditions and movements, though wider acceptance in other denominations has grown including in our own Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, there are Southern Baptist churches now who hold to the Baptist faith and message, 63 or 2000 or whatever, but would also be open to the practice and use of these charismatic gifts. Uh, it's out there. A lot of our, our new church plants and uh, churches that have changed on this, this issue, uh, it's there, and it's also in other churches, other denominations, uh, Lutheran, uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, even even Roman Catholic churches that, that are open to these charismatic gifts. So it has grown beyond the Pentecostal charismatic movement, but that is certainly the, the seedbed of it all, at least for American Christianity. Two Pentecostal pioneers that you want to be familiar with. Uh, number one, Charles Parham. Charles uh, Parham, P-A-R-H-A-M. Full name is Charles Fox Parham. And uh, he was a Bible teacher who started a Bible college in Topeka, Kansas, Bethel Bible College there in Topeka, Kansas, in the early 20th century. I mean, like 1900, so very early 20th century. Uh, he had begun to read the book of Acts and, and you know, really questioning what the church, the modern church, needed. And he became convinced that what the church needed was this Pentecost like or Pentecostal experience uh, that that you read in Acts, that these these people who were already believers received then some extra thing from the Holy Spirit, and um, in his mind, there it it was accompanied by these various signs, uh, tongues and prophecy, and so on. Uh, one of his students, uh, I think it was on the evening of January first, nineteen o one, so literally the first day of the twentieth century. Um, 1901 being the beginning of the 20th century, right? Uh, <laughs> one of his students named Agnes Oseman was, uh, they laid hands on her and prayed for her, and uh, she began to speak in tongues. Now, according to those earliest uh, reports, what she was speaking was Chinese. So it was not an unknown or heavenly language, according to them at first. It was Chinese, uh, an unknown language to her, but a known language in the world. So that, that's a significant note that uh, from the very first manifestations of this gift, allegedly, uh, it was a foreign language, unknown to her, but known to the world. Um, one of uh, Charles Parham's students, another Pentecostal pioneer there in your blanks, William Seymour, an African-American gentleman, uh, who took the message of Parham and this this, this spirit baptism with speaking in tongues, he, he took it 
uh, from Kansas all the way to California to Los Angeles uh, to a small church um, in probably the bad side of town uh, called the Church of the Apostolic Faith. And from there, what's known as the Azusa Street Revival broke out, that being the street the church was on. And the Azusa Street Revival was all about what Parham and uh, what Seymour had taught. Um, number two here in your blanks, what they taught was a post-conversion, post after you're saved, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, they based this on the book of Acts. Again, they're, they're looking at Acts, and they see people, most notably the 120 disciples in the upper room on, in Acts 2, Presumably, these 120 are already saved. They're believers in Jesus. Jesus has died and rose again, ascended to heaven. They placed their faith in him. They believe in him. They're Christians. But they're still yet waiting for this endowment of power from the Holy Spirit. And when it happens in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, there's that word, what happens? Well, they're filled with the Spirit, and they begin to speak in tongues. And so this whole, uh, this whole system emerges through Parham and through Seymour and these churches. Number three, that in this system, the initial evidence of this secondary baptism, so this post-conversion baptism with the Holy Spirit, uh, the initial evidence of this baptism was speaking in tongues. And that's for everybody, everywhere. If you're a Christian and you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you should, according to them, you will speak in tongues. That is the initial evidence. Whether that is your spiritual gift or not, and, and sometimes, you know, whether, whether you ever speak in tongues again, you did on that moment you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Other gifts, such as prophecy and divine healing, were also reported and encouraged. So what you had with with the, these Pentecostal pioneers was what they would have considered a recovery or a restoration or, you know, to use their words, a latter days outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they would have likened to Joel. You know, yeah, sure, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches and he quotes Joel, this is that that was spoken by the prophet in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your old men and your young men and all that stuff. Uh, Peter quoted that and they would have said, yeah, that was the beginning of it. But this is the, the fulfillment of it here at the beginning of the 20th century. You know, they believe Jesus was coming back very soon, and he is coming back very soon. But they believed it was dire and imminent and urgent. And what the church needed most was this renewal and this last day's outpouring of God's Spirit, which they believe, in this case, was evidenced by these supernatural signs, such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, divine healing, and the rest. Now, you talk about these, these Pentecostal pioneers, they're not coming out of nowhere. Um, you know, a lot of movements in the 1700s, the 1800s, you know, there were some weird things that happened around the First Great Awakening in the 1700s with the preaching of Edwards and Whitfield and Wesley. A, a lot of what we would call religious fervor and religious affections and, and what we might even call in some cases emotionalism. Uh, there were people, you know, falling on the ground in repentance and prayer and weeping loudly and wailing over their sins and things that would not have necessarily occurred or been accepted in the established churches at that time. Um, so not only that, but the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s, lots of other things are going on. And 
Um, then you have the, the birth of the holiness movement in the late 1800s from within Methodism and Wesleyanism that, that began to sort of teach this kind of idea that, yes, you get saved, but then you need this secondary experience with the Holy Spirit. Now, these early holiness Wesleyan Methodist types, they wouldn't have gone as far as to talk about speaking in tongues and so on, but they talked about this spirit baptism, the second thing, as sanctification. That sanctification is not something you have to sit around and wait on your whole life till you get to heaven. It can happen right now. And a lot of this was sort of based on um, some understandings of John Wesley's teaching on Christian perfectionism and uh, holiness and how it's possible to be holy in this life. And that's where some of this came from. So you already had the ground sort of toiled, uh, tilled, excuse me, for this sort of thinking. Salvation followed by this other thing whether it's sanctification in the holiness churches or now this baptism in the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. And in some cases, it was all three. In what's called Pentecostal holiness churches or uh, churches like uh, the church my dad grew up in, the Church of God Cleveland, they believed you get saved and then you have to be sanctified as a secondary experience and then you can have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so in many of those churches, a lot of that, Hung on, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. Parm and Seymour, they're coming from other traditions that are already starting to teach these uh, sort of things. This was just the spark that ignited what we call the Pentecostal movement in America. Next, of course, this was widely rejected by established churches. You, know, you got people in the Azusa Street Revival that are going back to their Baptist churches or Methodist, Presbyterian, whatever, holiness churches, even the holiness churches, not Pentecostal holiness, but Methodist, Wesleyan holiness churches. And they're saying, hey, I went to California or wherever, and I got this, this baptism in the Holy Spirit, and I spoke in tongues, and you should too. And I, understandably, maybe a lot of those churches are saying, uh, no, this is not what we believe, this is not what we teach. And, and so these people were removed from their churches if they tried to teach or push this doctrine. And so this was the birth of truly Pentecostal denominations. Uh, so entire denominations such as the Church of God Cleveland or the Assemblies of God in 1914 in Hot Springs, Arkansas, or the United Pentecostal Church later, uh, you know, official, uh, the, the, the African-American Pentecostal churches such as the uh, Pentecostal Assemblies of the World or the Churches of God in Christ, uh, a lot of these things, uh, this was the birth of those official movements. In other words, they have their own statement of faith now. And uh, when you read that statement of faith, you see salvation, you know, by grace through faith in Christ, yes, thumbs up. But also, there is this secondary experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which all believers should pray for. And when you receive that baptism, you will... Uh, through that initial evidence, you will speak in tongues. And so that is the classical, traditional Pentecostal doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. By the 1970s, many churches became open to these gifts, even if they weren't Pentecostal. So what you have over the 50s, 60s, and 70s, especially in the 60s and 70s, uh, with the Jesus movement in California and um, you have people that are, are sure they're, they're experiencing, whether it's divine healings or, or tongues or whatever they would call prophecy, words of wisdom. These things are 
are getting traction in what we would you know now call non-denominational churches, but other denominations are also becoming open to this. So you get a charismatic renewal movement in Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Catholic churches and Episcopalian churches and Anglican churches. I mean, across the board, you begin to have a more open, not, not always with everybody, but there are pockets within these denominations that are now open to these gifts, whereas before many of them were closed. This was the birth of the charismatic movement, uh, which is it has a very broad influence on the modern church. And uh, unlike any other denomination, you can't just say uh, Baptist. Well, that's you know bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. It's hard to do that with the charismatic churches because it's not a denomination. It's not one movement. They this is a movement within other denominations. So with entirely different statements of faith and big differences on many things. Uh, think about the difference between a Roman Catholic and, and a Baptist, and yet um, both might be open to these charismatic uh, gifts. There, there's the charismatic movement. They believe that those gifts are happening. They believe that they're available, but that's about all that really defines the, those distinctives. They're not classically Pentecostal. So remember, the classic Pentecostal doctrine is what? You get saved, and then you seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence, always for everyone, of speaking in tongues. Some charismatics buy that formula. Some charismatics don't. Uh, for many charismatics, they just believe that those gifts are available, that you should pray for them, that you should use them. You can speak in tongues. We can prophesy. It should be happening. We should chase after it. Even if they don't buy the classical Pentecostal formula, salvation, baptism with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. They say, well, some will speak in tongues, some will prophesy, some will have healing, some will have many or all or some of the gifts or whatever. Uh, so it's just very similar to Pentecostalism. Those gifts are still available, but without that formula. However, teaching about the sign gifts continues to divide Christians into two basic camps. Um, and if you turn your hand out to the, to the second page, you'll see these two camps, and we're going to talk a little bit about them. Cessationists believe the charismatic gifts ceased at the end of the apostolic era. So when you hear the word cessationist, you should remember the word ceased. It sounds a little better, I guess, than cessationist, but cessationists believe that those uh, gifts, such as tongues and prophecy, ceased, they stopped with the death, of, uh, the death of the apostles and the end of the apostolic era. On the other side are continuationists, and you can tell by the name, they believe that these gifts are still available, that they continue in the church today. And again, in both of these camps even, you have a broad spectrum. With, with cessationists, you have everybody from uh, that will never happen anywhere for any reason <laughs> to uh, God can do what he wants, but he doesn't do that anymore, all the way to um, we don't see it much anymore and it seems to have ceased, but sure, it could happen. And then in the continuationist camp, you have everyone from uh, this should happen everywhere always, and this is what makes a true church, speaking in tongues and these other gifts, all the way down to they still happen you can still seek for them, but you don't have to, and it, it may not be that big of a deal. So uh, even within these two categories, it's very broad, very uh, bird's eye view of the two camps. 
Let's talk first about cessationism. So those who believe that those gifts have ceased. Here's their primary argument. This is on your handout. With no complete New Testament, God used supernatural, quote, sign gifts, such as tongues and prophecy, to authenticate the message of the apostles. With the death of the apostles and the completion of the New Testament, these gifts ceased and are no longer available to the church. So that, in a nutshell, and if if you're a cessationist out there and I've misspoken, you can feel free to, to, to correct me. But I think this is, this is just the heart of the argument for cessationists, that those gifts were present for a particular purpose. They validated Jesus' ministry with healings and signs. They validated the apostles' ministry through healings and signs. And they, they, they allowed for revelation and God to speak within the early church because there was no complete New Testament. But when the apostles died, their mission was completed, and certainly by the time that there's a complete New Testament for these people to have, those revelatory gifts, prophecy, and so on are no longer necessary, so they cease. They don't, they don't happen anymore. Uh, so you can see a primary concern, first bullet point there, a primary concern for many cessationists is Revelation, not capital R, the book of Revelation, but revelation in terms of what God reveals. So, is the Bible God's final word or not? Many cessationists hear prophecy and immediately think, well, the, the prophets in the Bible, this is additional revelation from God. Uh, and, you know, to be fair, in many charismatic churches, sometimes a, a prophecy comes and they say, well, this is a word from the Lord. Or they might even say verbatim words and say, thus says the Lord. In fact, in, in many of the churches in classical Pentecostalism, if someone speaks in tongues in the church uh, in terms of a message in tongues, it is often interpreted as a message from God to the congregation. And sometimes, many instances, when it's interpreted, whoever's interpreting will say, thus says the Lord. And uh, cessationists look at that and I think rightly have a serious problem there. Is the, is the Bible not God's final, complete, inerrant, infallible word? Or is there more to be added through these things? So that's, a, that's a major concern for the cessationist. Number two, another big concern, false doctrine and bizarre manifestations define some charismatic movements. In the last 30, 40 years, Within the broader charismatic movement, there have been little pockets of these bizarre manifestations. Uh, if you if you never heard of the Toronto Airport Revival, you can go research that. Plenty plenty of YouTube research for that. Uh, the Brownsville Revival and in Pensacola at Brownsville Assembly of God. Um, the, the Kansas City Revival. There, there's there's all all these pockets of things. I think most notably, it comes to us and what most people will be familiar with today through Bethel Church in Redding, California. And what I mean by bizarre manifestations uh, in these movements and then in the Bethel movement are beyond tongues and prophecy, uh, beyond just emotionalism, um, the, the whole idea of being drunk in the Holy Spirit so that there's uncontrollable laughter and, and uh, uncontrollable convulsing and shaking and rolling on the floor and 
and um, making animal noises, as was the case in the Toronto revival and uh, the ministry of Kenneth Hagin, you might be familiar with. Uh, and and this, th- this had a broad influence even within classical Pentecostalism. So, you know, even many, many assemblies of God churches, traditional classical Pentecostals, were, were having uh, delving into some of this. And a lot of people looked at this, number three, and it caused many to reject not just those movements, but the charismatic gifts altogether. In other words, people looked at Bethel, people looked at the Toronto Revival or the Brownsville Revival or, or wherever else these things were happening. Um, you know, a, a city close to my hometown in Gastonia, North Carolina, there's a church in Rock Hill, South Carolina, that um, was involved in some of this, and they wrote a song called The Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. And, so, and that's uh, online for you to view for yourself, uh, your viewing pleasure. So uh, people looked at this and they said, well, if that's what that is, I don't want anything to do with that. If that's what you mean by charismatic, if that's what you mean when you talk about speaking in tongues and prophecy and the baptism of the Holy Spirit or whatever it is, we do have a tendency to lump everyone together in one pot. It's not fair, but it's what we do. And because of some of the false teaching at churches such as Bethel or Hillsong that you might be familiar with, and these bizarre manifestations that we see, people throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, not only do I reject that movement or that church or that teacher, I reject the charismatic movement altogether because that's what it is. Now, I think this is unfair and because those certainly don't represent all of the charismatic movement, but it is what has been done. So that's cessationism. Now, really, there, there's only one text that's in question for cessationist and continuationist. When, when you come to the Bible and you say, I need you to prove cessationism to me from the Scripture, there are some passages here and there that might allude to well, signs were done by the apostles, things were done by the apostles. And, and you might say, well, it says they were done in the past, but you'd have to you know, form an argument, I think, from silence to say, and that necessarily means they don't happen anymore. But one passage that uh, I've, I've traditionally heard people go to for a cessationist viewpoint is 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 8 through 13. And you'll recognize that this is right in the middle of Paul's sort of long discourse on speaking in tongues and prophecy within the the range of the the spiritual gifts. And it's in that chapter on love. And here's how that chapter on love um, concludes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Paul says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, if you take that, especially the first couple of verses there at face value, well, it says prophecies will pass away. It very clearly says tongues will cease, and knowledge, maybe word of knowledge, uh, that will pass away. So uh, 
Some cessationists, not all, would use this passage to say there, there clearly teaches that prophecy, tongues, that the, these things will cease and pass away. When what happens? Well, Paul says, when the perfect comes. And a, tr- a traditional cessationist argument has been, amongst some, lots of important words there, has been, well, the, the perfect thing Paul's talking about is the completion of the New Testament canon, the completion of the Bible, really, and the, the perfect Word of God being available for people to read and hear. And when that happens, there will be no need for prophecy or tongues or knowledge or these sort of revelatory gifts anymore. Now, it's not a terrible argument, but on a closer look at the text, uh, you'll see something different there, I think, and that, that's what we'll come to when we talk about uh, continuationists. So for cessationists, with the completion of the New Testament, the apostolic age comes to an end. You have the full revelation of God in the Bible, and so these gifts are no longer necessary, and they pass away. They cease. So let's talk about continuationism. Here's the primary argument for continuationists. There is no definitive scriptural evidence to suggest that the sign gifts have ceased. These gifts are available to the church today and are seen by some, they are seen, as evidence of true salvation. Certainly there are some in the Pentecostal and Charismatic churches who would say, yeah, these things would be the fruit of true salvation. But for others, um, it's just additional blessings for a believer with no bearing on an individual salvation. So there are some pockets who would say, yeah, you must speak in tongues to be saved. Uh, mainly in the, in the oneness or apostolic Pentecostal churches. Um, but for many, these are just additional blessings God wants you to have as a believer, but are not necessary in, other, in terms of, of salvation. So the primary uh, thing about continuationists is, no, no, these gifts have not ceased. There's no scriptural reason to teach that they have ceased or stopped. Uh, the New Testament being completed does not mean these things stop. The apostolic Uh, era coming to an end does not mean that these things stop. There are many views, uh, first bullet point there, there are many views about the relationship between these gifts and the authority of Scripture. So if you go back to that that primary cessationist concern about Revelation, is the Bible God's final word or not? You know, with all these other things happening, does God keep on speaking? Is there continual revelation coming from God, or is it over with the Scriptures? And when it comes to continuationists, there are are some different views on the spectrum. Number two, some have no issue with private revelations. Uh, So you'll have some that just don't, they don't see any problem with, you know, thus saith the Lord, this is what God told me. I heard God speak to me. He said this. He wants you to know this. This is for the church. So in addition to the Scriptures, you have these additional revelations through dreams or visions or words of knowledge or words of wisdom or tongues and interpretation and prophecy that God is continually still speaking to his church. And, you know, in some, in some ways it gets really problematic <laughs> because some of the things that are, that are then taught and um, passed off as the word of God in these churches contradicts existing scripture in, in some cases. So you've got a real, a real problem there. Uh, some don't have an issue with those private revelations. 
Others deny that these gifts are revelatory. In other words, some say, no, the Bible is the complete word of God. There is no more revelation to be given. Uh, tongues is not new revelation. And that prophecy really isn't new revelation. It might just be a specific application of already biblical revelation. So again, you have a spectrum. Some that have no issue adding to God's word and some that, uh, of course, would deny that that's what these gifts are for. So back to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, the cessationist says, see, prophecy will cease, tongues will cease, knowledge will cease. When the perfect comes, i.e. when the Bible is completed, when the New Testament is done, those things will cease. Uh, the continuationist, and I think rightly so, uh, says no. Uh, yeah, the Bible is perfect. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is the word of God. But that is not what Paul is talking about. Um, for the continuationist understanding here, the perfect that is coming is the fullness of the kingdom of God in heaven. When Christ returns and all of creation is restored and renewed and, and things are indeed perfect, when the perfect kingdom comes, of course there'll be no more need for tongues or prophecy or any sort of revelation or any sort of gift like that because we will experience the fullness of of the presence of God and the fullness of the kingdom of God in the eternal reign of Jesus. Uh, and so you know, what these things are, whether it's prophecy or tongues or whatever, these are foretastes of the coming kingdom. You know, what, what happened at the day of Pentecost was not the end in itself. It was a sign of what was to come when Jesus returns. And um, charismatics and, and continuationist Pentecostals would say, this is not about the completion of the New Testament, perfect as it may be. This is about the coming of the kingdom of God. And so, yeah, tongues will cease, prophecy will cease, not when the Bible was completed, but when Jesus returns, really because those things won't be necessary anymore. So let's get a little deeper into uh, tongues and prophecy then. Uh, the last part of your handout, um, amongst all the gifts, uh, the gifts of tongues and prophecy get the largest treatment in the Bible. Uh, Paul begins talking about the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, really about the unity of using these gifts. In chapter 13, he talks about the supremacy of love and how without love, none, none of the other gifts make any sense and they're, they're, not, they're not being used correctly. And then in chapter 14, really, the entire chapter is about these two more sensational gifts, prophecy and tongues, uh, in part maybe because the church at Corinth was so obsessed with these two gifts, and uh, they clearly thought that possessing one of the other or doing one of the other made them more spiritual or more mature Christians than others who did not have these gifts, speaking tongues or, or prophecy. So um, how does Paul deal with this, and how are we supposed to deal with it? Well, let's talk first about views on tongues because uh, there are different views on tongues. Uh, in the book of Acts, when, when the 120 are filled with the Holy Spirit in the upper room, um, it, it says that they began in Acts 2-4, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Um, it, it was the Feast of Pentecost. Lots of different people from different areas were there. 
Among them, verse 9, were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. Uh, there was people from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, lots of different people in Jerusalem for this feast. And it says when they heard this sound, they gathered around and they marveled because they heard these 120 speaking in their own tongues the mighty works of God. So one of the primary views on tongues, number one there, is that they are foreign languages, real human foreign languages. If there's anything unknown about them, is that they were unknown to the person speaking them. But they were nevertheless known languages. The speaker did not know the language, but the Spirit enabled them to speak it. Now that seems pretty clear from Acts 2, um, at least on the surface. Just a cursory reading. They begin to speak in tongues. There are lots of other people there who hear it in their own language. So, put two and two together, they must be then speaking in those other languages. Number two, um, is it an unknown language? In uh, 1 Corinthians 14, there seems to be something different. I'm not saying there is, there seems to be, at least raises the question. Whereas in Acts, you have these people speaking in tongues, and these other people understand it and hear it in their own language. In 1 Corinthians, um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Uh, in addition to that, Paul goes on to say that there needs to be an interpretation. Uh, so people look at that and they say, well, the person is speaking to God, not to people. So maybe that, maybe that could be a foreign language that the person is speaking to God that they didn't know. But there's also, the, why would they speak in a human language to God? Uh, there's that question. And, and furthermore, if they're speaking in a human language, why can no one understand them? And why does there need to be an interpretation given for people to understand? There's lots of different ways to explain that, sure, but it does raise the question, at least for some people, is this something different than what's going on in Acts? Is this a different unknown language as opposed to those known languages in Acts 2? Or is it all the same gift and uh, it's just a matter of us reading, <laughs> reading better? These people say this is not a human language, but rather a heavenly language. Going back to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men, and the tongues of angels. And sure, Paul is being hyperbolic. He's using the extreme. Um, but the continuationist or those who, who believe and practice speaking in tongues would still say, yeah, Paul is being hyperbolic, but there could be tongues of angels. Um, so they say this is a heavenly language spoken to God, not to people. And um, Paul says it's for their own edification. And they're praying to God. They're praising God. And that leads us to this next set of uh, differences. Number three, are tongues from God to man? So are they a prophetic word given from God through the speaker and an interpreter? 
As I said, in some Pentecostal churches, someone stands up, speaks in tongues. Another person, the pastor sometimes, or maybe even that person then interprets the tongue. And, um, you know, they do their thing and then they begin to give the, the t- interpretation in English or whatever language everybody else speaks. And the interpretation sometimes would be first person speaking from God. This is what this is and this is, and fear not and I'm with you. And, and at the end they say, thus saith the Lord. So are there instances where tongues are from God to man? Number four could be from man to God. Now, I think this more squarely fits with what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14 and Acts 2, for that matter. We'll talk about that later. This is from man to God. It is not revelation from God, but rather ecstatic praise or prayer to God. And whether you say that's a foreign language or an unknown language, there's differences on that. Um, this is the direction some people say it is. It is not from God to man, but according to Paul here, 1 Corinthians 14.2, it is from man to God in prayer and praise. So what about prophecy? Uh, prophecy's fun, fun because, again, we in, immediately think, well, prophets, prophecy, thus says the Lord. Uh, that's additional revelation. That's additional scripture. Um Number one, some people do see it that way, that this is additional revelation from God through visions, dreams, words of knowledge, etc. So someone gives a prophecy, and then you say, this is what the Lord said for you, or whatever. A church here in town recently had a prophetic night, and the pastor said, we got some people with prophetic gifts here, and as they sang some songs, there was... The, these prophetic ministers on the side, and the encouragement to the congregation was, uh, go over to these people, and they will have a word from God for you. I mean, literally have your phones out and record it, because this is God's word for you. There's no, pro- no problem in their minds with, this is a word from God right here, right now, in addition to scripture, and it's for you. Um, so there's, there's some that do see it that way. Number two, um, it, some people say it's not additional revelation, but listen, it, but rather confirmation and maybe specific application of Scripture to a hearer. So some would say, no, prophecy doesn't operate that way anymore. This is not Isaiah and Daniel. Thus says the Lord, I heard the God, you know, I heard God speak uh, verbatim to me, and this is what He said. Uh, but but New Testament prophecy, you know, you know, Paul talks here in 1 Corinthians 14 uh, about someone coming into the church and experiencing the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 25, it says the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Uh, the, the exposing of the secrets of someone's heart. And that could be good or bad. In this case, Paul seems to think it would lead this person to repentance. Uh, but it could be encouragement, it could be joy. Um, and, and these people would say, it's not so much additional revelation from God, as in, here's new scripture, <laughs> but based on the scripture, this is something that the, the Spirit of the Lord is leading me to tell you specifically in this moment for this time. 
whether that happens in the larger gathering of the congregation and something is prophetic or something happens one-on-one. Um, -on -one. Uh, you know, I told the, the group on Wednesday night this, you know, we've all done this, whether we realize it or not. Not saying we all have this gift, but God operates in this way. Uh, Baptists just call it something different, right? Baptists or, or cessationists in general, we say, uh, the Lord told me, the Lord, the Lord led me, the Lord put you on my heart. You know, I dreamed about you last night and I just wanted to give you a call and encourage you. I just felt like you needed someone to say, you know, and I'm not saying this is always prophecy, like, oh, there it is. But it is interesting that um, that's how some people would view the gift of prophecy. That's exactly what it is. These promptings and leadings of the Holy Spirit to not add to the word of God, thus says the Lord, but to take something from the word of God and deliver it to someone in a specific, um, maybe more pinpointed application. Lastly, uh, some people say that um, prophecy is merely another term for preaching or teaching. You know, the prophecy is just another term for preaching or teaching. Uh, this is a, a little problematic because there are already biblical words for preaching. And, uh, you know, when Paul speaks to Timothy about preach the word or in Romans 10 about, you know, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them, there, there are biblical words already established for the proclamation of the word in terms of preaching or teaching or telling or evangelizing. Those are words we already have. Um, this is a different word. Uh, this, this, this prophetic thing that, according to Paul, exposes the secrets of men's hearts and, and causes them to fall on their face and worship God. And, you know, additionally, it's, it's interesting to me that cessationists might say that prophecy is preaching uh, <laughs> because according to their own understanding of the gifts, uh, that, gifts that gift has ceased. <laughs> so that shouldn't happen anymore. So if all it is is preaching and teaching, then uh, what do we do with preaching and teaching if that's uh, prophecy? Well, that's the end of the handout, uh, but I do have some concluding thoughts. And, and this is, uh, is kind of the, the second part of this, and I'll try to be brief with it. Um, that was the information. That is, you know, here's a look at the two sides or however many sides there are, and, and uh, that's, the, that's the nuts and bolts of it. This last section I called Things to Think About, or importantly, uh, Things I Think About. <laughs> And uh, I self-admittedly am not settled on this issue. Uh, I think I am decidedly not cessationist, but um, to what degree on the other category I am, I don't know. Um, I have not spoken in tongues for all I know. I don't um, typically in an in a earnest way pursue that or ask for it. Uh, some of you would say that's the problem, <laughs> uh, whatever. Uh, not experienced that, and, and I don't think it's central for the church. I don't think it's central for a church to have, so I'm not a charismatic in that sense, I guess, either. Uh, so you say, what are you? And I say, well, you know, as old as I am, I'm 36, but uh, I, I have learned in my short period of life to this point that to be okay not knowing some things. And then it took a long time because I'm always the one that wants to research and know and study and find out and have a definitive, like, this is what this is, and this is how this works. And um, I've become better. I think it is an improvement. I've become better at being able to say, I don't know, and uh, maybe I don't need to know. So, th so these are some things to think about, though. 
Um, what's going on in Acts? Okay, I, I, we talked about the 120 disciples who were already saved, and then they get the Holy Spirit, and then they speak in tongues. And then later uh, in Acts uh, 9, Acts 8, I'm sorry, when the, when the gospel comes to Samaria, you know, they believe, they're saved, but it's not until Peter gets there that they receive the Holy Spirit. And presumably, presumably, because it's not there in the text, they speak in tongues. Um when the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles in Acts 10, even before they're baptized, you know, Peter's still preaching to Cornelius and his family, and the Holy Spirit comes down, they begin to speak in tongues. Um, and then in uh, Acts 18, I think, with the Ephesians, not only have they already believed, but they've been baptized. Um, well, they've been baptized into John's baptism, but they believe. And, and so... They are laid hands on, they receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues. And um, you say, well, what's going on here in Acts? Why, why is this the pattern? Pentecostals would look at that and say, well, that is that should be the pattern. You get saved, you believe in Jesus, and then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Well, this is a difference in the view of Acts that we'll call the difference between seeing it as descriptive and seeing it as prescriptive. And I think you can understand what those two words mean. That something that's descriptive is just describing what's going on. We have these instances, these encounters, where the Holy Spirit falls, it seems, at a different time from someone's conversion. And in some of those cases, they speak in tongues. In some cases, they prophesy. In some cases, we're not told what happens. Uh, but at least with the Sumerians, uh, Samaritans, um, Simon the Magician clearly thinks something's happening, so there must have been some visible manifestation. So Pentecostals should say this is prescriptive. This should always be happening. This is the norm for the church. Others say, and I'm in this category, this is not prescriptive. These are descriptive, that we see what's going on. We're being told history, and there's a point to it. What is the point to it? Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then, as you begin to flip through the book of Acts, what happens one instance after the other? Well, the Holy Spirit falls in Jerusalem in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit falls in the region there at the end of Acts 2. The Holy Spirit falls in Samaria in Acts 8. The Holy Spirit falls upon Gentiles in Acts 10. And then by Acts 18, to the northernmost reaches of what they would have considered the, the known world empire at that point, Asia, Ephesus, the Holy Spirit is falling. And so really, these instances are not so much about telling us today, this should always be what happens everywhere for every Christian, but it's telling the story and showing the unfolding of Pentecost, the unfolding of of the gospel in the world from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the end of the earth. And so there's something historical and redemptive about what we see there that's being told to us in story form and isn't necessarily some formula that's to be followed every time. And you'd be hard-pressed in all those instances to find an, an exact formula. Uh, sometimes that they're, they're baptized and then this happens. Sometimes they begin to speak in tongues and then they're baptized. Sometimes baptism isn't even mentioned. And so people that try to attach some formula to this, I think, just read too much into the text. 
It's more descriptive than, than prescriptive and tells us something particular that's going on in that period in church history that isn't necessarily going to be repeated always. So in Acts 2, when it says they began to speak in tongues, and in verse 4, and then in verses 7 through 8, we have these people from all over the world hearing them. Uh, it, I, I think it's worth noting that, that the disciples uh, begin to speak in tongues, and these people gather around from all over the known world at this point, and they hear them speaking in their own languages. Now, could the disciples be speaking in those actual human languages, and they heard them in those actual human languages? Yes, that, that's a very good possibility. I'd, I'd say it's a strong possibility. But there are some who said, uh, some who have said, well, there's also a gift in the hearing. If you notice the language in verses 7 through 8, they hear them speaking in their own language, and, and perhaps they're given the ability to hear. And the reason they say this is because in Acts 2, 13, verse 13, there are clearly others there who don't presumably don't hear. They mock, and they say these people are drunk. Now, there's a couple explanations to this. Number one, Maybe they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Anyway, is someone from Persia there? And uh, well, the Apostle John is over there speaking Persian, but they happen to be next to, to Peter, and he's speaking something else. And, and so they think he's just babbling and he's out of his mind. He's speaking a known human language, but it's not their known human language. So while others hear in their language, that person doesn't, and they say, this guy's just drunk. That's one possibility. Um, number two, God stops their ears. Whether the disciples are speaking in human languages or not, um, God stops some of these people's ears from hearing and understanding, and they hear, I don't know, they hear gobbledygook, they hear gibberish. Number three, um, maybe they do hear them in their own language, but maybe because of how they're acting, seemingly excited, <laughs> uh, emotional, it says they're declaring the mighty works of God. Um, some people hear them in their language, but they just think they're drunk because they're just yelling out loud and, and praising the Lord. Number four is another um, option. It's in line with another option here earlier. Uh, the disciples aren't speaking in known human languages. They are speaking in an ecstatic heavenly language. Um, some are given the ability to hear, not necessarily the gift of interpretation, but something like it. They're given the ability to hear, and some are not given the ability to hear. Uh, God stopped their ears. Um, and so what we have here is more of a miracle of speaking and hearing, and some do and some don't. That's a possibility. All these are possibilities, and that's all, that's all I'm saying uh, about this. It's, it's hard to just look at something and say, well, this is exactly what's going on, uh, because we, it's just simply um, unclear. What we do know, and I think what we can say with clarity is that the typical understanding on behalf of um, cessationists that, and maybe it's not typical, but that, that these disciples are preaching the gospel in, in languages. In other words, all these people are here from around the world, and in order to reach them, the disciples didn't know their language, so they had to suddenly speak their language, and the Spirit enabled them to do that. For what purpose? Well, to preach the gospel to them so they can be saved. 
The only problem with that is uh, we're not told that that's what they're doing. In fact, and I, there's there's a little bit of an argument from silence here, but I think it's interesting. Um, I think it's interesting to note in Acts 2 that when these people describe what they're hearing them say, in Acts 2.11, it says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. It's also interesting that in Acts 10, uh, at Cornelius' house, 10.46, Acts 10.46, when they begin to speak in tongues, it says that they were speaking in tongues, extolling God. That's worship, that's praise, that's uh, seemingly ecstatic praise and worship and prayer to God. Seems like, and, and they say, hey, these, these people got the Holy Spirit the same way we did. So it seems to indicate that what was going on in Acts 2 was not the disciples communicating to these people in their own languages. And whether you say it's foreign languages or not, that's beside the point. The disciples are worshiping and praising and praying to God, and these people are simply allowed, whatever the language languages are, to hear it. Because then in verse 14, Peter stands, he's coherent, he's cogent, he's rational, he's understanding what's going on. He corrects them, no, these people are not drunk. He begins for the next 30 or 30 plus verses to preach the gospel. Maybe in Aramaic or, or maybe in, uh, in Greek, whatever it would have been. Um, seemingly he preaches in one language and everybody is able to hear and understand what's going on. Uh, so the nature of their speaking in tongues was not so that they communi- could communicate to these other people. And, and it was not so that they could preach the gospel to these people in a, in a different language. It was a, a unique gift of expression of praise and prayer, extolling God, to use the language of Acts 10. Um, and then Peter preaches the gospel. Um, so whether you see them preaching or, or speaking in different languages or speaking in a heavenly language uh, is beside the point, really. <laughs> the, the direction is to God. They're praising God. And then Peter begins to, to preach the gospel coherently. Um, the, the only reason why I might have to say you know, it's, it's an unintelligible heavenly language, I'm not set on that, but... It, it cleans up for me, at least, what's going on in Acts 2 and what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, that you don't have to have two gifts, as some people say. Well, you have foreign languages here, and then over here you have this other thing, this unknown uh, heavenly language. And, you know, in, in our talks <laughs> amongst, the, amongst the pastoral staff, I, I've been led maybe to lean towards foreign languages even more. Um, that these were human foreign languages. First of all, many of the early church fathers say that that's what the gift was. It was languages that they had not learned, and now they're suddenly able to speak. Um, I still think that the primary direct, the only direction, is from is from the person to God in prayer and praise and worship. Um, I still have a lot of questions in 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Why I reject the Pentecostal doctrine. Um, because, again, when you look at Acts 2, 8, 18, uh, you do see a post-conversion falling of the Holy Spirit. Um, but again, let's ask, what's going on in the book of Acts? And I think you can read the rest of the New Testament, and you do not see an emphasis on that formula. Uh, you don't see a concrete, I need you to be saved, 
and then I need you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to speak in tongues. You, you don't see that emphasized at all. And in fact, when you come to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul's almost down, downplaying the importance of tongues, uh, that he wants them to do it, and he praises God for it, you know, that it's a gift of the Spirit, but he'd rather them prophesy. And, and, and tongues is almost like this, uh, this gift that they, they should chase after prophecy more because people can understand. And, and so I think all that evidence put, put together more or less says that, that this formula of classical Pentecostalism it just isn't there in the Scripture. Not to say that those gifts aren't there, but it, it seems like that, that formula is not there. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians 14 very quickly as we kind of conclude. This is, uh, this is Paul's really seminal work on prophecy and, and tongues specifically, for whatever reason those are, are singled out. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul has talked about the spiritual gifts um, for use in the body of Christ, for service. In 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about the gift of love as the chief gift, the supreme gift. Uh, without which all the other gifts are meaningless. And then in verse four, in chapter 14, he, he really deals with tongues and prophecy specifically. And I just want you to notice a few things with me, things that when I actually opened the Bible and began to read 1 Corinthians 14, uh, what jumped out at me. First of all, again, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, uh, someone who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. I don't see any reason anywhere else in Scripture to think that speaking in tongues is is directed towards men. Now that goes that I think that's an assault on both sides of the camp here. Um, like I said, in in some traditional Pentecostal churches, someone will speak in tongues in church, and then there's an interpretation given, and it's from God to the people. Thus says the Lord. I don't see any reason to think that that would be the way tongues works in Acts or First Corinthians, um, fourteen. On the other hand, cessationists say, well. The purpose of tongues is for for people to speak in languages languages that they don't know, so that people can hear the gospel and be saved. I I don't see any any evidence in scripture that that's what tongues is either. Uh, not in Acts two, we already saw that they're they're declaring the mighty works of God, they're extolling God, and then Peter preaches the gospel. Um, and in First Corinthians fourteen two, we see clearly they're not speaking to men, but they're speaking to God because nobody understands them. So it's the exact opposite of speaking for someone uh, to understand um, or preach the gospel to them. The direction is not to men, but to God. And I think that's an interesting and an important verse for us to note. Uh, in verse First uh, Corinthians fourteen three, uh, we see that someone who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding. Okay, there's a, there's an outward horizontal from man to man aspect there. Um, but in verse 4, the person who speaks in tongue builds up himself. He edifies himself. Now, some have been, uh, some have used that verse, verse 4, to say that, that there's something bad about that. When you speak in tongues, you're only edifying yourself, and, and that's somehow bad. And it's not, that's not a bad thing in the, in the Bible. In fact, Jude encourages us to build ourselves up. That's what edify means, to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. In fact, Jude couples that with what he calls praying in the Holy Spirit, which according to many uh, continuationists and understanding that to be tongues, 
Uh, whether, whether you agree with that or not, it's fine. Uh, the point being that it's not wrong to edify or build up yourself in the faith. In fact, it's encouraged. And so anyone who says verse 4 is somehow sarcastic, that, that Paul is berating people who edify themselves and how selfish they are, that's not what he's saying. Um, that's not the point. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 13, we see that if someone speaks in tongues, um, or speaks in a tongue, they should pray that they would interpret. Now, now this is interesting. Uh, m- many of us have heard, I'm sure, that, well, if you're going to speak in tongues, there has to be an interpretation. Uh, well, that's true. If, if it's being done out loud in the gathering of the body. Uh, also interesting to note that a person can interpret their own tongues. First um, Corinthians fourteen thirteen. Let them pray that they may interpret. Someone else very well could, but it doesn't preclude someone from interpreting it for themselves. I've just simply heard that as a way of dismissing it. Well, they spoke in tongues and they interpreted. You know how convenient is that? Well, Paul gives way for someone to interpret for themselves. Um, it, Another, another verse that makes me think a little bit is verse 23. Uh, someone comes into the church and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say that you're out of your minds? Now, it could be foreign languages, and that's, that's fine. I'm, I'm open to that. It would raise the question, why would someone think that you're out of your minds? if you're just speaking different languages in the church, if, that, if that's all it is. Um, they could very well think you're out of your minds, depending on how it's happening, and they don't know Spanish or they don't know Chinese or whatever. That, that could be the case. Um, I don't see why anybody would think that you're out of your mind for that reason. Could be, could not be. It's interesting also to note, I think, that in verse 28, um, if there is no one to interpret, Paul says, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. One of the things I had always heard said was there has to be an interpreter, and if there's no interpreter, then it's not real and you shouldn't do it. And Paul doesn't say that. Paul does not say that there must be an interpreter for you to speak in tongues. He says there must be an interpreter for you to speak in tongues in church. And if there is no interpreter, let that person keep it between them and God. After all, that's the direction of it anyway, isn't it? Verse 2, not to man, but to God in prayer or praise. So when I hear people ridicule the, the idea of a prayer language or whatever, I, I, might not, I might not necessarily buy completely into that, but if that's an interpretation of the Scripture, um, that's there. It could be there. Because um, Paul does not say you need an interpretation. Uh, he says you need one if it's going to be done in the body life church. Lastly, just a little bit about prophecy, uh, what I might be thinking about in prophecy, things that make me go, hmm, with prophecy. Uh, Again, 1 Corinthians 14 doesn't give us prophecy as a sort of, thus says the Lord, write this down, hear scripture. Um, And and, and cessationists would hear that mostly and say, well, that's interesting because biblical prophecy is always this. And then and you're just making it something else to say that it's this. And here, here's how I would just respond to that. Um, one of the primary reformed confessions of faith, the, the Belgic Confession, and those of you who want to go research it and find the section, 
I know this is in the Belgic Confession, that when a minister preaches the word of God, then that preacher is speaking the word of God. Now, it doesn't just refer to the reading of the Bible verbatim, but it says when that person preaches the word, rightly, that's important, according to the the scripture itself, that's important. When that person preaches the Bible, (laughs) this reformed uh, Calvinistic document says that is also the word of God. They're not saying this is adding to Scripture, obviously. A Reformed confession would never say that. Uh, They're not saying this is additional revelation. But as that minister rightly expounds and applies Scripture, that is the Word of God for the people of God. So my only question in this is, how, how, how is prophecy not the same thing? If we can say that the preacher preaching the word of God preaches the word of God, even though his individual words and phrases are not inspired scripture, right? How would we not also say that someone prompted by the Holy Spirit to go give encouragement or to go give a rebuke or admonishment to a brother or sister in Christ, not saying something different from scripture, but applying Scripture directly, specifically, maybe supernaturally to that person for that time in their life. I don't see how that's not the same thing. I don't see how we would say, well, that that is not the same thing. That's what I would think biblical prophecy is. Not adding to Scripture, not additional revelation from God, but taking his existing word, his existing revelation, and applying that directly to the hearer. Now, some would say, well, if that's all it is, then why is it necessary? Because we have the scriptures. Well, that's fine, but then, you know, why do we have preaching? Why explain it at all? Why not just read it and call that good? Well, because God intends for his word to be proclaimed and explained and applied. It's very clear in scripture. Not just read the word publicly, Timothy, but preach the word, proclaim it, and apply it with correction and admonishment and encouragement, as Paul says. You know, all those things are there. I think prophecy operates um, within that those bounds. The kicker for me is 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 39. At the end of all of it, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, I... Uh, again, I'm kind of undecided on some of these things. Uh, I'm not hardcore one way or the other, except I'm decidedly not cessationist uh, for verses like that. I don't. I can't tell you that I know what that means. Um, I can't tell you I know what it means to obey that verse. All I know is it's scripture, and um, we would look at that and say, "Well, are we gonna? Do we obey that or not?" And that's that's the kicker question for me. Many would say, well, okay, what about those bizarre things in the in the crazy churches? What about their false doctrines? What about their weird views on some things? I would just tell you to look at Corinth. If <laughs> you you know the church at Corinth, uh, Paul says they're immature. They need milk, not solid food. 
he said that they're like babes in Christ. They abuse the gifts. They abuse the Lord's Supper. They're misguided in their doctrine. They're confused in their doctrine and the spiritual gifts. Uh, I mean, they're even they're even guilty of of being privy to serious sin uh, and, and not dealing with it. I mean, Paul says that they had someone in their in the church who was. Uh, engaging in, in sexual immorality with their father's wife, their stepmother. And he says, "Why? <laughs> how is this still going on? You need to deal with that. Um, so there's this serious stuff going on at Corinth, and, and I find it so interesting and so telling that Paul still talks about them as believers. He still he, he wants them to be mature. He wants them to grow up. He wants them to unify. He wants them to do things right. He wants things to be done decently and in order. He wants them to deal with sin. But he doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater with Corinth. He doesn't say, you know what, y'all are so y'all are so jacked up that, that this is just not even worth doing, and and just forget all of it. None none of it's true. None of it can be right for you because you're so you're so far off. I think it's interesting that the message of Paul to the church at Corinth is not stop doing these things. You stop with the prophecy. Stop with the tongues. He does not tell them to stop. He tells them how to do it in order. He tells them how to do it decently so that people are edified, so that believers can be edified, so unbelievers can be saved, so that the power of God can be seen and heard, but that above all, the gospel would be clear. Now, I'm not saying that we apply that to every single instance where we see these things happening, and, and there's also false doctrine and things. There, there, Absolutely a place and a time to call out false doctrine and false teachers, such as that which happens at Bethel and Hillsong and, and the like. But it's also in, important for us to take a step back and say, well, Corinth was pretty jacked up too. And uh, Paul didn't say stop. He just said this is how this is supposed to happen. I just leave us with First Thessalonians 5.21. Um, you know, Paul talking about some of the same things. Don't quench the spirit but test all things and hold to that which is good. Now, how do you test all these things? Well, you test them according to Scripture. None of these are superior. None of these are even side by side with Scripture. I hope I've made that clear. But whether it's prophecy or tongues or wisdom or knowledge, however people view those things, it must be subjected to Scripture. Because Scripture is the standard by which we test all things. And Scripture is the, the standard by which we determine which things are good and then which things to hold on to because they're good according to Scripture. So if you came to this hoping to hear um, a definitive answer, um, I hope I've disappointed you. <laughs> I hope that you'll go from this study to go research and study for yourself, to read for yourself. Um, our Statement of Faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, is ambiguous enough on all these issues that we're going to talk about uh, to provide a big tent in Southern Baptist churches and in our convention for people who differ on these things. And um, as I said, I, I, for one, am okay to say I don't know and uh, to keep praying and to keep searching and to keep studying. I'm okay with that. Uh, it makes some people nervous. That's fine. Um, but I, I think it's the place for us to all be as Christians, always, with these things that are unclear or maybe not so set in stone in Scripture. 
And I believe this is one of those issues. So whatever side you land on, you know, praise God if it's if it's according to an understanding of Scripture and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'll leave that to you and Him. Test all things. Hold to that which is good. If you have any questions, you can always text me or call me. Uh, my number is available. It's out there. You can email the church, fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can call the church, 806-935-5604. Any of those ways, get in touch with us. Leave us a message on Facebook. I'll answer any questions I can. If you want to come talk, we can come talk and read the scriptures together. That's fine. And I can do some recommended readings, whatever would help you in your journey with Jesus. All right, let's pray as we uh, conclude today. Thank you, God, our Father, for this opportunity to talk and uh, to study together. Thank you for the gift of media and recording that we're able to do this. Even though we missed the recording on Wednesday, we're able to follow up and do it again. For everyone to hear and listen and be edified by, I ask that you would help our words today uh, to be edifying, that you would use the lesson, this study, this this look through your scripture. I, I ask that you would make it profitable to us, that, that we would see Jesus, that we would see your Holy Spirit, that we would be confronted with our own misconceptions, whatever they are, and we would be corrected by your word, wherever that lands us. Uh, we ask for your Holy Spirit to fill us, to fill our church, and to use us, uh, not for these sensational gifts, but that Jesus would be lifted up, Jesus would be magnified, and his gospel would be clear for our community, for our world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, hope you enjoyed the the study. As always, if I can answer anything for you, let me know. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.